0: Well, hello, everyone. I think before we begin the Q&R, why don't you just sit for about 10 minutes. uh, Silence it, I won't be guiding this, just as a way of settling into the space, into ourselves. When you're ready, you can open your eyes, mindfully, mindfully seeing. Uh, So I'm supposing that you sent in a few questions. So uh, hopefully, Ileana has picked the easy ones. So whenever you're ready, you can uh, read them.
1: (laughs) All right. One question asked is intensive jhana practice necessary for awakening on the path? What do we do if we can't afford to step away for months and years on retreat to cultivate jhana?
0: Yes, well, um, jhana is not necessary. Uh, For those of you who may not be familiar with that term, it's a term that refers to deep states of concentration where the mind becomes absorbed in the object. (laughs) Um, And it's mentioned often in in the discourses. (laughs) But there's also a teaching uh, from the Buddha that talks about people who have walked the whole path to liberation uh, without having uh, developed jhana. So while it can be a big help, uh, it is not necessary. So one example, one image, which might uh, give you some idea of how it works. Uh, My teacher, Saito Pandita, he would say that if we have that level of concentration, you know, if we've developed jhana, it's like being able to cross a river or a big lake in a motorboat. It makes it a lot easier. And without jhana, it's like growing across. So clearly that level of concentration can be a great help. But for some people, either because just the particular conditioning of their minds or the circumstances of their lives, it may take longer to build the boat, the motorboat, than to row across. So I think that's good just to keep in mind. You know, if it's possible and circumstances allow and the mind has that, uh, capacity it's a good thing to do but for whatever reason if not it's not necessary because the Vipassana practice itself develops enough concentration uh, for awakening for the experience of nirvana. next question
1: Hey another is I was reading books by Jiddu Krishnamurti and he talks about the rejection of authority the need to question everything, and that truth cannot be organized. To which extent is this to be understood? How far can we rely on a teacher and teachings?
0: <laughs> well, of course, if one follows that advice, one is relying on him as a teacher. So it's a kind of ironic the statement. However, It points to something that I think is really important. And one of the things that attracted me and many others to the teachings of the Buddha in that in this way of understanding, there's uh, no call for blind belief or blind faith in anything. That the way the Buddha characterized the Dharma and practice uh, in a very wonderful little phrase, he said often, come and see, come and test it for yourself. And he very explicitly said in, in a famous sutta to the uh, a group of people called the Kalamas, uh, it's called the Kalama Sutta, he basically said, don't believe anything. You know, don't take anything on faith, but rather hear the teachings, whatever they may be, and from whomever, hear the teachings Put them into practice and then see for yourselves whether it reduces and in the end uproots those qualities of mind that cause suffering, like greed and like hatred and like delusion. And it's only when we've tested it for ourselves and see for ourselves, oh, yes, this works, even if we have not accomplished the final goal, but from the very beginning, we can see is this really helping? Is it helping me become more wakeful, more aware, less attached, less fearful? You know, is it developing wholesome states? And so in that sense, that advice I think is quite good. It's that we want to take responsibility for assessing whether a particular practice and a particular teaching uh, is serving that end. And as many of you probably know, the Buddha often summarized what he taught in a simple phrase. He said, he teaches only suffering in the end of suffering. Right, so it's not about ascribing to certain metaphysical beliefs or certain dogmas. It really is very pragmatic, is the teaching is, and is our implementation of the teaching reducing suffering in our lives. Um, and so we are the ones who can assess that. Uh, and I think uh, that openness to investigation, you know, not, not just to believe something as dogma, but is this working? Uh, I think that's what's very inviting about these teachings for many people. Next. All right.
1: Another question asks, In the past few months, I'm experiencing doubt in my practice. I continue to sit daily and study Dharma, but I question the practice and wonder why I persevere. I also often feel low energy and continue with the practice because I hope it's just a difficult phase. Please give suggestions for getting out of this slump.
0: Well... Uh, There are a few few levels to that. One is doubt, as many of you know, is one of the five hindrances that the Buddha highlighted uh, as being uh, obstructions to the practice. And in some way, doubt is the most challenging um, because with all the other hindrances, desire, and aversion, and sleepiness, restlessness, we are in the arena or the ballpark of our chosen object. We may not be relating to it skillfully. In other words, we may be relating with uh, desire, or aversion, you know, or restlessness, but we're in the ballpark. When the mind is filled with doubt, then we really have removed ourselves even from the arena of practice. And we're just caught up in the thought loops of whatever that doubting mind, however it's expressing itself. And it can express itself in many ways. Uh, You know, thoughts of, I can't do this. Or this isn't the right time. Or do these teachings really work? There's a lot of different uh, manifestations of doubt. So when we're caught by that doubting mind, uh, we're not at all in relationship to whatever the actual present moment is. And that's why it's particularly challenging. At the same time, doubt, like all the other hindrances, is very workable. And the way of working with it is to see how quickly you can recognize both the particular form the doubt is taking for you. And so you want to look carefully enough at what your mind is doing, uh, almost to be able to write down the sentences that are are in the mind. And I say, it might be self-doubt, it might be doubt about the teachers, it might be doubt about the teachings. Whatever the doubt is, but to get very precise in how it's arising in the mind. Because from that precision, when we're aware enough and mindful enough of the form it's taking, then it becomes easier to become aware of it just as it arises. And that's the key to freeing ourselves from being caught. So you're sitting and you're feeling the breath and whatever else is going on, and one of these doubting thoughts come. As soon as you recognize it, make a mental note. That becomes the object of your mindfulness. So, doubting mind, doubting, doubting, doubting. And uh, to remind you of something I mentioned, uh, the yesterday or the day before, uh, particularly watch the tone of voice of the note. So if you're noting, doubting, but there's a lot of aversion to it, that will be reflected in how you're noting, <laughs> you know, oh, doubt, 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 <laughs> you know. So, and if you remember, the, the key then is simply to soften the tone of voice of the note. So we're simply acknowledging, oh, doubting mind has arisen. That doubting mind is not I, it's not self, it's not mine. It's just a conditioned pattern of thought that functions as a hindrance. But if we see it and we can be mindful of it, and the noting here is really, careful noting, is really helpful. In that moment of noting, we're not caught up in it. We're not identified with it. And so it simply becomes another passing thought. And we just continue with our practice. So the first uh, response you know, to that question is to really give some emphasis to uh, say catching or, or becoming mindful of the doubting mind as close to the beginning of it as possible. Uh, and that will, that will free the mind from the deleterious effect of doubt when we're caught in it. And the Buddha had a very, um, very striking image for the effect of doubt in the mind. He called it the thorny mind because it's like a thorn that keeps jabbing the mind, you know, irritating the mind. And when doubt is strong and it's not addressed in this mindful way, it becomes a real um, obstacle in the practice it can really can really stop our practice but making it the object of mindfulness it just becomes something else to note and to notice and to let go of so that's that's the basic framework for working with doubt but then how do we work with those times that may have given rise to the doubt appearing in the first place. And it might be times of low energy, might be times when we feel nothing much is happening. You know, I've been sitting and walking. And so the few things in that regard, one I'll share with you, uh, this goes back many years when I was practicing in India. I've been practicing for quite a while. And at a certain point for, it was really for months, uh, that I just, my practice felt in the indulgence. It just felt like it wasn't going anyplace. Uh, so there was, there was that doubt. You know, okay, what's going on here? And then I realized, I, I, I talked to myself a little bit and I said, Joseph, your job is just to sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, sit and walk, do the practice, let the Dharma take care of the rest, like surrender to the unfolding. And that really helped me a lot because then it took me out of that thorny mind of doubt. And it just inspired me to the extent of, okay, just persevere. Just keep doing the practice and the Dharma itself will go through its various phases and at a certain point, we will begin to feel either more energy or some more momentum. Um, So that's another uh, something to keep in mind, that we do our part and then surrender to the Dharma. There are a a few other possibilities here. So, as you can tell from my response, your question I think reflects what almost every meditator will go through at different times. So, this is this is a common experience uh, that we need to learn to work with. So one time I was, this was when I was practicing in Burma, just the conditions. Were, were not very good, the, the physical conditions. And at a certain point, my mind was complaining a lot, right? which was its own kind of doubt about what am I doing here and you know what's going on because the conditions were so uh, challenging and difficult. I go in to see my teacher, Saida Upandita, and I tell him that you know, the conditions are not good, the food wasn't good, and this and that. Uh, and all he said to me was, be more mindful. <laughs> and the thought in my mind when he said that was, thanks a lot. know, <laughs> know, yeah, yeah, I've come all the way to Bernhardt and practicing, and the conditions weren't that great, and, and he's saying simply be more mindful. <laughs> but he was my teacher and a really great teacher, So I leave the interview and I go outside. I'm doing walking and I thought, well, I'll try it. And so I became more mindful in the walking. I actually brought my attention in closer to the feeling of the sensation, you know, of the walking, of, of the step, of the movement. And it was amazing. Because as soon as I brought my mind down right into the experience in a very careful way, and it wasn't forcing, it wasn't over-efforting, it was just feeling it very intimately, feeling the sensations of a step, the movement, the touch. So this is not complicated and we don't have to have any kind of fantastic concentration to do this. It really has to do with what I mentioned the other day is refining the habit of the quality of our attention. You know, so when our attention is more casual, what what I often call the state of more or less mindful, you know, and this could be in the sitting or the walking, where we're kind of there but not really fully there. So especially in a situation that um, you asked about, when it doesn't feel like much is happening and there's low energy, and that's exactly the time to bring the attention in very close. And again, it's a feeling of it closely and intimately. It's not not over-efforting to do it, it's, it's settling back into it. And as soon as you drop into that level of attention, I think you will feel your practice getting energized. And at a certain point, it may take some time, you know, a kind of momentum builds up and more energy comes. So it's, it's all of these things. It's recognizing doubt, noting it, Uh, persevering, just do your job, let the dharma take care of the rest. And then also noticing the quality of your attention and bringing it closer to whatever the object is. So the situation is definitely workable. And uh, I would encourage you to to really uh, play with this. Next question.
1: How can you discern the difference between delusional justification and wise understanding of a greedy or deceptive action that you believe will not bring harm to oneself or others?
0: <laughs> uh, I wish I could ask the question back to the question, it, so I don't. Um, why don't you read it again? I'll see if I'll see if it, something lands for me.
1: Sure. How can you discern the difference between delusional justification and wise understanding of a greedy or deceptive action that you believe will not bring harm to oneself or others?
0: Well, (laughs) yeah. So I think the answer was contained right within the question. And if one recognizes that it is a greedy action. So if there's enough mindfulness to see, oh yeah, this is just an expression of greed, already that is indicating that a rationale for doing it because it doesn't harm oneself or other is already diluted because greed is a harmful, it's certainly harmful for our own minds and very likely harmful for other beings our whole practice is to uproot the causes of suffering right to to really see through and uproot those qualities of mind those factors of mind and these are the ones that the buddha you know buddhist terminology he called the unwholesome mind states greed hatred delusion you know, grasping, uh, cruelty. Uh, this, there's a list of, of unwholesome mind states. And when we pay attention, uh, can we, uh, when those mind states are arising, we will see that it is a state of contraction, it's a state of suffering. So, one experiment you can make which will illustrate this, I think. Uh, and as I say, this is not something you have to believe. You want to investigate this for yourself. But it's very interesting when we're sitting—could be sitting or walking—but but sometimes it's, it's uh, clearer in the sitting. So we're sitting and just feeling the breath, feeling the body, and then maybe some greedy fantasy arises in the mind. You know, maybe it's a lustful fantasy or. Um, Yeah, it could be a sexual fantasy, it could be food fantasy, whatever. You know, whatever is really grabbing us and filling us with greed for it. Now, what's interesting in in my experience, sometimes, you know, we're seduced by the pleasantness of imagining what it would be like in that experience, right? And so that's the hook for us. Uh, we're we're anticipating some pleasure and so we could get caught up and most of us at different times have gotten caught up in many different kinds of fantasies what's really interesting is at some point you're sitting and then just getting caught up you know in whatever the fantasy is And even thinking at the time, oh, I'm really enjoying this. But then watch what happens. So we're there and we're lost in it and lost and lost and lost. And then it goes away because it will. Everything that has the nature to arise will also pass away. And everything is impermanent in that way. What I have experienced over and over again, no matter how seductive the fantasy was which is really just a manifestation of the mind of greed you know it's a wanting no matter how seductive the fantasy was when it goes when it disappears I've always experienced that as a kind of relief and release it's like the mind has been let out of the grip of something And we're abiding then in a state, a space of much greater openness, freedom, ease. And so by seeing that again and again and again, we're not so fooled by that rationale, which really is a diluted rationale. Oh, this is not harming myself. It's not harming others. It's okay. Uh, Because it is harming us, you know, in a very basic way. It's creating a certain environment in our minds that is grasping, is attached, is contracted. And we can see that clearly in the moment when it goes away, because right in that transi- transition, we can feel, oh, it's like a sense of relief, release. Um, so, and and the same thing would be, you know, if, if it's a mind state of anger. The the Buddha had a a wonderful description of anger because sometimes we are seduced for one reason or another by that mindset and we feel, well, I should be angry for whatever the circumstance may be, not realizing that in that anger, we are suffering. And the Buddha described this as anger with its poisoned source, poisoned root, and honeyed tip, right? So that's, that's a really powerful image for me because it's acknowledging, yeah, the tip is honey and it's seductive and we justify it to ourselves. But the root or the source is a source of suffering, right? And we can see that. You know, we, we can really feel it. Um okay. so, so I think that as soon as you recognize the mind that the mind states are unwholesome of greed or anger, whatever it may be, then it's to realize that our rationale or justification for acting on it really is coming out of the deluded mind. Um This is not to suggest that just by hearing this or even understanding it, that all of a sudden we're going to never act on these unwholesome mind states because uh, unfortunately we do, you know, out, out of long established habit. But the more we see, the more clearly we see, we begin to do it less and less and less because we're actually happier and more at peace not acting on those mind states. And again, this is something to check out for yourself, not to believe it because I'm saying it or maybe it's in the text, really investigate and see what your experience of these mind states is.
1: All right, this is a little on the longer side. I have a desire to reconcile my practice of the Dharma with a sense of ambition for my life to achieve and to become successful professionally, relationally, and monetarily. This means living up to my potential, being admired, valued value for my positive contributions and create pleasant experiences for others. Many motivational speakers talk about getting really clear about what you want as the first step to actually getting what you want. I get started on this path in regards to success, and I quickly run out of steam when I try to reconcile this with my practice. This makes me feel stuck and like I'm not leading an integrated life as a householder practitioner. Please help.
0: Yeah, so fortunately, I don't think this is really a problem. I think it's more a linguistic problem. And that is that in English, the word desire can mean many different things, and we use it in different ways. So sometimes we use the word desire, and it means, or so it's expressed expressive of a quality of greed and attachment and clinging and grasping. So in that case, it is an unwholesome mindset. But desire can also be used. In, I have a desire to be of service in the world I have a desire even to be successful and uh, the whole the whole list of desires that was mentioned in the question all of the ones mentioned seem totally fine and reasonable to me you know that they are uh, they are valued society values of how to live a full and engaged life uh, and to so we when we use the word, oh, I have a desire uh, to be respected, you know, uh, by my peers or my family, or I have a desire uh, to contribute to to, you know, develop myself professionally. Whatever it may be, I think the key is investigate. Not it's not about not having a desire for those things because this is the use of the word desire in a very different way than the meaning of desire is greed. It's more, the word I like better, you know, to express this is the word aspiration. We have an aspiration for certain things. So even those two words, you know, they're very different uh, flavors and connotations as we use them in English. You know, so desire can easily Uh, slide into that sense of unwholesome desire whereas for me when I think of aspiration that feels like a wholesome move towards something of value and so I would just really investigate what are those aspirations that you have and are they of value you know for you and for the world for the people around you Uh, and if you feel that they are then the aspiration for them and the working to develop them seems totally fine to me. And, um, you know, when the Buddha taught to lay people, and it's quite different, you know, when he was teaching monastics, there was a whole different level of renunciation involved. But he had many lay disciples, and many of whom um, reached various stages of enlightenment but when he was speaking to lay people he um he referred to and acknowledged the value of worldly we might say worldly success or taking care of oneself in the world in a in a wholesome way um yeah so i i don't really see any conflict at all i i think it's more that we kind of sometimes confuse uh Perhaps one of the connotations of desire, with this more wholesome move towards accomplishing our goals, um, yeah, I, it would be interesting to to really consider what your goals are. Uh, but I imagine that for the most part they're wholesome. you <laughs> wanting wanting uh, to create happiness for yourself and others. And, to be of service in the world. So those seem like all really good things.
1: Another question asks, can you elaborate how equanimity differs from apathy? I've been practicing treating the cup as if it's already broken, but, it feels like day-to-day decisions matter less if it's all going to change anyway. How can we move forward in making decisions without a test?
0: Well, I think, I think the key is that in, in the practice of equanimity, and using the example of the cup already broken, it really has to do with freeing ourselves from attachment to the cup. It doesn't mean that we don't appreciate the cup or enjoy it, maybe it's a beautiful cup. You know, maybe it it works really well to, to serve its function keeps our coffee really warm (laughs) or whatever. We can appreciate the cup and use it and uh, be delighted if it's a particularly beautiful cup. But our understanding, when the wisdom mind comes in, we realize it's already broken at some point. And so we use it, we appreciate it, we enjoy it, but without attachment. And so when it does break, or when conditions do change, that we've been very involved in, you know, and engaged in various smaller and bigger decisions of our lives, uh, where we really do participate fully in what's happening, but we do it with the wisdom of understanding that things are always becoming otherwise and being attached to things staying a certain way is going to be the cause of suffering. Uh, so apathy is the not caring about things. And the equanimity is not being attached to them. So that's that's quite different because we can be in a very caring mode, in a very engaged mode, and still be living the wisdom of understanding the changing impermanent nature of things. And so then we are holding on less and the less we hold on, the less we grasp, the less we suffer when things do change as they will.
1: Another question. Often in sitting meditation, I get a sensation of energy at the top of my head or centered between my eyes, which might persist for the entire session. Do I just touch it as I might a pain and continue with awareness of other sensations as they arise?
0: Uh, I would experiment a little bit and different teachers um, will have different approaches to this. And so you can really experiment with some different approaches. So for example, one of my teachers for a while uh, was Goenkaji. Uh, and he had a particular method of practice. It's basically the body scanning. Uh, but at certain points in the, certain times in the practice, he would say, you know, keep your attention, you know, at that sensation at the top of the head. And it, it's almost it's like a. I don't know in some traditions, they might call it a chakra. We don't use that term very much in in this tradition, but there are definitely different energy centers in the body, you know, that become very uh, apparent at different times. So in working with him, he would say that you can spend some time just resting in that sensation and staying there, not for the whole, not for a whole sitting, but more than just a few moments. Uh, Or sometimes he would say, well, just uh, rest in the sensation at the heart center. So that's one approach and you could do that for a little while and see what happens. Um, Other approaches would be, uh, you know, if it's calling your attention to just be with it for some time, but not necessarily as long. So you're with it and we feel it and then come back to just the mindfulness of the the flow of changing objects, whatever they may be. Uh, So there's no hard and fast rule for this. And I would experiment one thing to uh, keep an eye out for if you do spend a little more time at any one of these energy centers really pay attention to the quality of balance in the mind and in the bodies so sometimes people might do that and they just feel feels like the whole energy system is getting tighter or the mind is getting uh, disturbed in one way or another uh, so the key is to really be watching what happens you know as you're staying at those particular centers and if it feels like it's getting out of balance you know or contracted in some way or uh, intensifying too much or whatever it may be so then um, i would back off from that and open up to other sensations in the body the breath uh, you know whatever's happening in the mind um, but this, there's room for a little exploration this.
1: Another question asks, how do we work with the resentment that comes up when we give to people who habitually take more than they give back?
0: Well, <laughs> I think this has to do with, that the resentment is coming from and expectation uh, when we're giving. Uh, So in a situation, and if we move to give something, it'd be very interesting to watch, to see, is there some kind of expectation of one thing or another? Uh, And so if there is, then the giving is still good, but it's, a little bit diminished, the the spirit of generosity is somewhat diminished by the expectation of something in return. Uh, If there's no expectation, then I think there would not be, the, the feeling of resentment would not arise. But in the situation described, maybe it would result in you not being inspired to give to that person, you know, again. Um, or maybe not, maybe, maybe it would be fine. But given the fact that, you know, you felt some resentment arising, uh, it might well be that, you know, you're not inspired to, to give to that same person. But I think the important thing for us as givers, you know when we are giving something to really to really see what our motivation actually is in that moment. So I'll just share one story with you. Uh, this goes back to my early days in India, you know, when I was practicing and as those of you who have been to India know that uh, I mean one of the realities of living there is just there are a lot of beggars, you know, on the streets. So, Often, uh, young kids. Uh, so they're, they're all around, and so we have to learn, in one way or another, how to relate, you know, to this, to this experience. So one time, it was in between retreats, and I was down just in Bodh Gaya, the place of the Buddha's enlightenment, and I went into the village, uh, to the bazaar, and I was just buying some fruit. And this little beggar boy came up, uh, you know, this handout, and just without thinking, very spontaneously, I gave him an orange. So it was, it was not some huge act of generosity. It was just, you know, something quite spontaneous in the moment. But then something really interesting happened. I gave him the orange, and then he simply walked away without the slightest acknowledgement. And I certainly was not expecting effusive thanks for the orange, but when he walked away without any acknowledgement, not a smile, not a nod of the head, nothing, I realized, oh, there was an underground expectation that I had not even been aware of until he left without responding in any way. So that was really interesting to me, to, and it. it started to uh, interest me more in really looking and seeing okay when I'm giving something just to be open to what our motivation is in that moment is it just meta or compassion you know friendliness uh, is there some even even mild or subtle agenda that uh, and, and to really look at this, to take the interest in this. It's, it's not to have a judgment. Uh, it's just to see, you know, can we uncover more and more subtle levels of what's going on in our hearts and minds? Um, and there's a line by the poet W.H. Auden, uh, which I really love, which suggests a very... Um, a very forgiving quality of ourselves and others. So this is, uh, I don't know whether this line was in a poem or just some writing, but uh, he said, love your crooked neighbor with all your crooked heart. (laughs) So it's just the acknowledgement that unless we're saints, you know, our motives very often will be mixed. Sometimes not, sometimes they may be really, you know, pure in the moment, but it's not surprising if we find, oh, there are some mixed motives. The key here is to see them, right? So it's not to judge, it's not to think, you know, there was some terrible person because, because there was a mixed motive, uh, but the more we see it, that is the process of purifying, um, So that's what I would suggest, Uh, you know, in that giving, and regardless of how it's received, um, our job is to be seeing what's going on in our own hearts. Uh, And each of these exchanges provides a really uh, good opportunity. You know, and sometimes, you know, we'll feel resentment or we'll come to understand that, Yeah, I was expecting something back and sometimes not, Uh, but all of this really is tremendously illuminating.
1: Okay, another question says, I am a beginner and I am old. I was feeling inspired by the practice of mindfulness, but getting a glimpse into the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path and the lists within lists is overwhelming. I should have started this path 50 years ago, and I may never get beyond the practices of mindfulness and metta. It will have to be enough, but please, can you offer any advice?
0: Uh, Yes, mindfulness and metta is enough. (laughs) So there's a story of, uh, this goes back to the time of the Buddha. You know, one, Also, it was an elderly man who wanted to become a monk. And, you know, in the monastic order, there were hundreds of rules, 216 monastic rules. And, you know, this this elderly man said to the Buddha, "I, I can't even remember all those rules. You know, it's going to be impossible for me to follow them all. And the Buddha said, can you remember one rule? And this, the man said, yes, think he can follow one rule. And the Buddha said, be mindful. You know? So don't underestimate the value and the power of mindfulness because mindfulness brings along all the other wholesome qualities. Um, you know, there, there are a group of mental states which are called the factors of enlightenment, and these are qualities like investigation and energy and rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity. And these are the qualities when, they, when they're developed and come into balance, they, they are the qualities that uh, provide the ground for awakening, for enlightenment. And it's said that mindfulness, which is listed first, when we practice mindfulness, it brings all the others along, it develops all the others as well. So I think you can really have confidence in your practice, wherever, wherever you're starting from, um, mindfulness and metta will carry you a long way uh, along the path. And I don't know your, you know, your uh, belief system <laughs> regarding you know, next lives and future lives, but within the Buddhist context, of course, that is that is part of the teaching. And so no matter when we start uh, our practice, we are cultivating the field of, of wholesome mind states, which if that's true, and the Buddha talked a lot about it, will carry over you know, from life to life and carry us along the path. But it certainly will bear fruit in this very life, just those two qualities you mentioned. Um yeah so I think you can have you can really have confidence in that
1: another question in how can we know if we are ready for a longer retreat hmm.
0: I think that if you have the interest in doing it you're ready <laughs> because A longer retreat is really no different than a one-day retreat it's the same kind of experiences only over many days so you know if you've done a day long or a weekend or a few day retreat and you feel inspired you know interested in doing a longer one uh the interest itself i think is an indication that you're ready and uh, i would go for it you know um, I think it's appreciating, you know, given, given the state of the world and just how turbulent things are, I have this very strong, one might call it a bias, that when conditions allow for us to do more practice, uh, and that involves you know the resources to do it the opportunity to do it the time to do it uh, all the supporting conditions but if they're all there and the interest is there i would definitely go for it because we just don't know when these opportunities will arise again and it's such a precious it's just such a precious opportunity um You know, I, I first got into uh, meditation. I was in the Peace Corps in Thailand. This, I was right out of college. I was young. I was like, 21 years old. In Asia for the first time. And it was the first time of connecting with the Buddhist teachings. Um, and some of the monks, I was going to these discussion groups. Um, <laughs> I had studied philosophy in college and I was asking so many questions in these groups. People were getting really annoyed with me. Uh, So Finally, one of the moms said, "Uh, Joseph, why don't you try meditating? So I was young, I was new, this was all really new to me. Uh, So I get my paraphernalia together, I get all set up, set my alarm clock for five minutes because I didn't want to sit too long. But what was amazing, something really happened in that five minutes, and it wasn't a great enlightenment experience. It was simply the understanding in that first five minutes that there was a way to look into the mind and understand it, as well as looking out through it. And most of our lives were just looking outwards, you know, and dealing and engaging with the external world. But to come into contact with a practice that provides a methodology for looking inward and really understanding our hearts and minds and seeing, okay, what's going on? It's the causes of different kinds of suffering in my life. You know, and what are the potentials within the heart and mind for more peace and more compassion and more love? Just understanding that, that there is this way and there is a, well trodden path you know these are teachings that have been practiced for thousands of years that have been passed down to us Uh, and so i just have this tremendous uh, really gratitude you know for having come in contact with these teachings and then really taking the opportunity whenever it presents itself can i deepen that can i develop it Uh, it's just very rare and very precious. Um, and especially now, you know, this whole aging process. And I'm sure most of you, many of you have felt this as well. Uh, time is speeding by, you know. And so it's just when there is a chance, you know, I would go for it if there's that interest and motivation.
1: Hey. Does noting pleasant and unpleasant sensations reinforce our craving and aversion to them? And how do we work with them when and if they do?
0: Okay, so this goes back to the tone of voice of the note. So if there's something pleasant and you're noting it, Oh, pleasant, pleasant, pleasant. You know, you're just sinking into the pleasure of it. So that's just reinforcing uh, attachment to it. Whereas if the node is really equanimous, where it's just the simple acknowledgement, oh, pleasant, pleasant. So we're experiencing it. It's not, it's not separating us from the experience of pleasantness. But the note in in an equanimous tone, a soft tone, can really uh, guide the mind into a relationship towards what's pleasant and unpleasant, in that case, without feeding the tendency for attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant. Because that's what we're trying to decondition those those reactions of the mind, uh, they're so habitual. You know, I think I mentioned uh, last night. It just seems so normal. Of course, I want what's pleasant. Of course, I don't want what's unpleasant. But there's another whole level of understanding of relating to see that yes, just our life is made up of this. Um, continuum changing process, pleasant, unpleasant, pleasant, unpleasant. And if we're not reactive, we're not trying to hold on to the pleasant, not trying to push away the unpleasant, which just keeps us in a state of turmoil. You know, it may be subtle, it may not be some big, big struggle, but if we're really paying attention to our mind, we'll see that the mind is not at peace when it's when it's filled with attachment and aversion. And so the noting of pleasant, unpleasant is a way of aligning our awareness and our attention with these universal um, aspects of experience. The, The feeling, tone, pleasant, unpleasant, that arises in every moment of experience. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Neither. So this is happening all the time and mostly we're caught in the habit of our conditioning. The meditation is giving us at first glimpses and then more stability in being able to be with pleasant, be with unpleasant, without the mind being affected by that. So we're experiencing it. It's not not that we're uh, oblivious. But we're not reactive, we're simply open. The mind is impartial. And the experience of that is one of much greater peace. We're really at ease. We're not buffeted, you know, by the uh, by the storms of pleasant, unpleasant liking and disliking. Uh, so the noting when it's done properly can be a really big help to this.
1: Hey, and- question asks, I am interested in committing more deeply to the Dharma. Most teachers say that you don't need to go to India or Burma or Thailand to learn the way, and yet most of them did go there and studied with Southeast Asia teachers. Is there really no difference between studying and practicing the Dharma in the West versus in its birthplace?
0: Well, uh, there are there are some differences, uh, think there there are uh, how to say positive and negative sides to both. So practicing in Asia, although it's getting increasingly difficult just because of uh, political conditions, uh, so Burma is not. It's not an easy place to be these days, uh, but you know when when conditions allow for it, it is quite inspiring to be immersed in a Buddhist culture uh, where the whole culture values uh, the practice. Um, so that's that's really inspiring and energizing. So that's on the one side. On the other side, conditions can be difficult, you know, health wise. Uh, the food. There are a lot of conditions uh, that are much more conducive to practice here in the West. So, you know, there are advantages to both. Um, I would say it's certainly not necessary to go to Asia. uh, First, there are many Asian teachers, many of our teachers come and teach in the West. So in that sense, (laughs) you get the best of both. Uh, But even there are many experienced Western teachers who can really you know, spent a lot of time and probably practiced in Asia when there were not as many opportunities here in the West to practice. And certainly that was true of uh, my generation of teachers. Um, so there was not much happening here when I first went uh, to Thailand and to India. Um, so the opportunity to practice and to go deep in the practice, uh, that's certainly available here. Um, and people have done that, you know. It um, was one of the it was one of the uh, inspirations here at IMS for creating the forest refuge, which, as some of you may know, it's it's a facility uh, different than the retreat center where people can come for long term practice, uh, and it's clearly uh, not set up as a course model. Uh, there, there's some teacher support, but it's there's a lot of self self-directed practice, along with the, some support from the teachers. Uh, and we've had, we've had people come and spend many months, a year, and one couple actually spent almost four years there practicing. So there are opportunities here to really uh, immerse oneself in the same way that one might have done in Asia. Okay.
1: This is a two-part question. We'll start with the first. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> How important is an intellectual understanding of the Dharma? Is it enough to just, example, know the basics of the Pasana and Metta that we have been taught here in this retreat, and then just work with our meditation?
0: So um, this will depend somewhat on you know each person's. Uh, kind of interest you know in further study along with the practice so in practicing you know and what's being taught here it certainly provides the basics for continuing the practice uh, because um, as as one of my uh, my first teachers said uh, the practice is simple It's not easy, but it's simple. Uh, So it's not hard to understand, and I think you probably have a sense of that already. Uh, So the actual instructions and meditation and guidance that you can get uh, is pretty straightforward. However, for those who have even some interest in the study aspect, it can be really helpful because it enlarges our understanding Uh, of what the Buddha taught. And the Dharma is vast. So even though the path of practice is very straightforward, kind of the ways of understanding the mind and the body and having a conceptual uh, framework for that uh, can be really helpful, both both interesting, but also helpful for our practice. We learn things um, beyond what may be just our own personal experience. So in practice, for example, we each have our own particular path and kinds of experiences that happen. But that's still a very limited part of everything the Buddha taught and what's possible. So I've just found that uh, study in different ways uh, can be enormously helpful. And sometimes, you know, we may be reading a book. It might be the actual teachings of the Buddha, reading the discourses. It might be books from more contemporary teachers, you know, talking about, talking about the teachings. But very often, sometimes in reading or studying a bit, maybe there'll just be one line or one phrase that resonates with something in my own experience and unlocks something you know, something gets clarified, which I might not have thought of by myself. So, I would say some amount of exploration on the study side uh, can be really helpful and and it's interesting, but how much you do, that really depends just on your own particular interest. Um, But to some extent, I think, I think it's helpful and and interesting.
1: The other part, when do we know that we are ready to advance our practice to the next level? Also, what is the next level after we are (laughs) able to concentrate well on our breath?
0: (laughs) So the title of my first book was The Experience of Insight a natural unfolding. So the second, the, the, like the subtitle, I think really expresses how the practice unfolds. It unfolds naturally. And in some ways, and this may sound a little contrary to what I just said, but there's a way of clarifying that. Sometimes knowing too much about the different levels and you know the different stages of practice can be a big hindrance because then the mind gets filled with it, can get filled with expectation and wanting and frustration and it's often things proceed much more uh, organically and and easily not knowing about all that and just doing the practice, and letting it unfold as it does. Uh, And this is one of the um, things I just so appreciate about this particular form of meditation, that it's very organic, you know, just by basically following these simple instructions, we use the breath as the primary object, the anchor, and then opening up to you know whatever else may be arising and first it's bodily sensations and then it's what arises in the mind is thoughts or emotions or uh, images and it's just seeing, seeing or cultivating that strong mindfulness of what it is that's arising moment to moment and then uh, emphasizing or noticing uh, the fact that it's all changing it's just It's just this, as I mentioned, empty phenomena rolling on. And so we're just in that flow of change. And simply by being in that flow, that will take us through all the various levels and stages. And uh, so I think it's most valuable um, to really trust that, you know, and, and to trust that it will all happen and unfold naturally. Um, it is helpful from time to time, you know, being on retreat and getting some guidance from a teacher. So because there are different times that this doesn't have so much to do with levels, but it has to do with different ways the mind can get caught or hooked or tight around something that we might not see ourselves. So in that respect, you know, a teacher and guidance can be really helpful is just unhooking from whatever it is that uh, we may be attached to or pushing away. So that kind of guidance is valuable. Uh, but the practice, if we continue, it will unfold. You know, and just and that's
1: that's the beauty of it. Someone asked. Could you draw comparisons between Vipassana and Zen or perhaps between Theravada and Mahayana?
0: Well, uh, you know, the, this, the question of how different traditions, different Buddhist traditions relate to one another um, was of great interest in to me because um, I practiced in several different traditions and sometimes it can seem like they're at odds with one another because um, they do emphasize different things, there are different methodologies and even different metaphysical understandings. And so for a while, I was really confused because really great teachers in different traditions um, would sometimes be saying opposite things. And there I was, I was trying to make sense of, you know, well, the Burmese teachers say this, the Tibetan teachers say this, the Zen teachers, uh, who's right? And for a while I was driving myself crazy with that question uh, because it was really tormenting me. But then at a certain point, there was a kind of revelation, so to speak. And I realized I was asking the wrong question It's not a question about who's right. It was seeing all the different teachings as skillful means. So instead of of thinking that the teachings are statements of some absolute truth, oh, it's this way or it's that way, I began to see the teachings from the different traditions all as being skillful means. And then skillful means for what? And you know, as I explored and investigated, I saw that what was in common to all the traditions, whether it's Theravada or Zen or Mahayana, Vajrayana, all the traditions agree that the mind of freedom is the mind that is free from any uh, clinging to I or mine. So it's really, if a practice results in liberation from clinging, and and this this is a phrase the Buddha used a lot in the text, he said, liberation through non-clinging. And it's non-clinging to anything as being I or mine. And this is, this is getting into the depths of the practice and what we learn from what seems like a very perhaps prosaic exercise of just being with different phenomena and seeing the changing nature because the deeper we, we experience uh, or, or yeah, open to the rapidity of change that's what deconditions the clinging. Uh, because we can't hold on, things things are changing so quickly, it's like water over a waterfall. So I, I saw and I realized both from study and from practice in different traditions that the essence underneath you know, the metaphysics and even underneath the different methodologies, they're all serving this aim of non-clinging. And so that became then a very uh, freeing way for me of relating to the different traditions. And I think we can really look, you know, any practice that we're engaged in, whether it's this one or, or any other practice, that I think would be the question to ask. Is this practice freeing the mind from clinging? Uh, because that is the essence of the free mind, not clinging to anything as I or mine. And so we really open up to this really profound understanding of selflessness, emptiness of self. And, and the, different, the different Buddhist traditions can certainly approach this you know from different sides and different angles, but that is the essence.
1: Okay, another question asks, I have never heard anyone address the fact that the Buddha abandoned his wife, son, and parents, and how this can be reconciled with his teaching.
0: Well, that question comes up a lot. Uh, I think it just has to be held in the context Kind of, of of the whole Buddhist cosmology, you know, of many lives and aspiration to become a Buddha, and and again, this this is all what's told, um, you know, in in the texts and, and different teachings. Um, I have no way of confirming this for myself, so I'm just relaying, you know, how it's how it's understood that. Given, given that this was... The Buddha's enlightenment was a process that happened over innumerable lifetimes. And the people around him, over all these many lifetimes, were very connected from life to life in many ways. And that often the people closest to him were those who made aspirations. You know, so for example... To become the wife uh, of the being who would become the Buddha, or to become the son, or it's like that. So it's just part of a much bigger tapestry. And so in the last life, it was just living out the final culmination of the Buddha's coming to awakening. But the understanding is that you know all of all of the beings who were close to him were really in. In the in that bigger picture, uh, in a supportive uh, relationship to that, and in fact, the Buddha came and shared the teachings with his wife and his son, and they became fully enlightened as well. So it has to be seen in that in that very large context.
1: Another question says. A few years ago, I was practicing meditation very consistently and noticing major improvements of wise action, speech, and concentration. During COVID, I lost this consistency and old negative habits of mind and body began to resurface. As I restart my practice, I find myself regretting the loss of continuity and judging myself for how I have digressed. What can I do to get past this state of remorse and reignite a continuous practice?
0: So I'll share a sad story with you. I had been uh, in India practicing for quite a few years. My practice was going really well. And at a certain point, uh, just the concentration was good and... I, the experience, I was just feeling my whole body. Is, it was like a body of light. You know, and it just it felt wonderful. It was really quite blissful. Uh, and every time I sat down, that's what it would be like. And then I had to come back to the States to make some money to, to be able to go back to India. When I went back to India... I had completely lost this body of light, and it felt like it felt like I had a body of twisted steel, you know. And I spent the next two years in in just kind of the way you described. Oh, what did I do? And a lot of self judgment, and what did I lose? And just all of that. And I spent two years struggling with this idea. Oh, how can I get it back? And it was terrible. It was the worst two years of my practice until I realized that I had just been carrying a corpse around, you know, of these past experiences. And what I needed to do instead of struggling with all the feelings about it being lost and the struggle, you know, that came about from that, it, it's amazing. It took me two years to understand this that it was just to come back and basically be with what was happening now and go forward rather than looking back with regret or remorse or self-judgment, which is totally useless, doesn't serve any purpose at all. And it just um, agitates the mind. So there are a lot of things at different times, different conditions where we may have been really going along quite smoothly, and then it's just a big disruption of one kind or another for whatever reason. The practice when we finally come back to a place, you know, of being present and of seeing what's going on, and so then we just start right where we are and open to whatever our experience is. You know, in this moment maybe we don't have the same level of concentration that we did before for now, you know, or other things are not as useful. It doesn't matter because, okay, I'm gonna share a phrase with you, which is very awkward English, but it's to this point. And and it relates to the the teaching of the Buddha where it said, liberation through non-clinging. It doesn't matter to what you don't cling so, if you realize that the essence of the practice is non clinging, then we can practice not clinging with whatever's arising. So, it's not clinging to good concentration, it's not clinging to bad concentration. Whatever it is that's arising, it's just another arising experience. Can we be with it? Can we be mindful? without holding on, without pushing away, without greed, without aversion, and then we're right back in the path. And as the quest, you mentioned in the question, and I've experienced and everybody else really, we just go through different cycles where we go through times of great ease and times of great challenge for whatever reason. You know, and in recent years, COVID was a big factor in many people's lives. But wherever, whenever we come back to, you know, a commitment to the practice, then we just start right where we are. And we can practice with a depth, regardless of, as I said, the level of ease or not, if we realize it's not to cling to whatever it is. And then our practice continues to unfold. And that's what happened with me. After, after two years of that struggle and self-judgment, it didn't go back to exactly as it was, but the practice continued to unfold, and so it gave me a lot of uh, confidence in that. It just took me that much time to learn, um, so I would I would hope it doesn't take you two years, you uh, know, to get back in the in the uh, flow of being with whatever experience is arising. Uh, just as it is and practicing, you know, in the way that you've been doing over these past few days. So uh, it's, uh, I think, time. For some of you, I think on the West Coast it's, uh, it's dinner time. Uh, so this has been great. Uh, there'll be another question uh, session tomorrow for about half an hour uh, and it, it's on the schedule. So have a chance to relate to some more of the questions that you sent in. Um, So have a good evening and see you tomorrow. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.